Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Lemonade podcast brought to you by the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice. Part three of the Lemonade Reader is titled The Lady Sings Her Blues and explores themes of spiritual practices alternative to Christianity, the politics of generational legacy, and the challenges inherent to respectable Black womanhood. Our discussion leads us down a path of interrogating the possible limitations that Christianity presents, whether by silencing victims of clergy sexual abuse or failing to adequately capture a woman's sense of betrayal by marital infidelity or through the exclusion of women from church leadership. We problematize the often American tendency of referring to African religion as a singular entity rather than recognizing the plurality of African religious and spiritual practices. We consider how Beyonce rewriting the public lineage of Black people connects to Cheryl Zondi rewriting the public narrative of the victim of sexual assault. We also consider the ways that ecological spirituality can be said to be something of an alternative to Christianity. Lastly, we grapple with the question of whether this podcast, conducted by young Black scholars on the tip of Africa, can be said to be a decolonial form of knowledge production. Are we really decolonizing when access to this content requires certain resources to begin with? Or does the break from academic tradition represent the beckoning of a new era in the work of knowledge production? You decide. We hope this discussion leaves you rethinking your own assumptions about the potential of academia. May you be encouraged to question your own thoughts about religion and spirituality and the uses thereof in your own life. Okay, um, I'll go. Um, so for me, guys, I really didn't find like basic concepts or themes, um, but I wanted to pick it up from chapter 17 on Beyonce's Lemonade and the Black Swan Effect, <clears throat> where <clears throat> I think the whole idea of transmedia storytelling and interrogating issues of racialized patriarchy and gender oppression, using lemonade to do. And for me, how you say it, and I go back to just a little paragraph in Interlude E, where it's the function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you from exploring, explaining and explaining over and over again your reason for being oppressed. So in my research, it's, I took it as the very serious function of clergy sexual abuse is to silence. And it's really, I'm just picking up that, that distraction and silence making comparison that in my research, it keeps you from connecting with God when you've been abused sexually by a priest due to self-blame, so issues of self-blame and being silenced. Um, so once you report it, there's always a myth that, that opposes your, 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 your coming out or your, your complaining about the trauma that you've experienced. So instead of starting your journey of healing, you carry on explaining to people why and how you've been abused by clergy. Uh, against myths such as it was just an affair, against myths such as um, what did you do to tempt the spiritually guided men of God. Um, so that's the thing that I took from that very paragraph about the function of racism as a distraction. And I was trying to relate it in my own research to say that just as um, uh, com like common racial slurs that are used, especially in South Africa, like often say that slavery was 400 years old or apartheid was 25 years ago, get over it. And in return, you carry on explaining that actually it might be politically over or legally, but it's still existing. So that unnecessary work or labor that you carry on doing to explain how you've been traumatized and oppressed, I find it similarities with the, the fact that the very function of racism is distraction, as it says in the Lemonade Reader. So in my research, I'm saying the very function of clergy sexual abuse is to silence at, at its core, is to silence you from actually studying your healing journey, but explaining how you've been traumatized by your priest, how is it even possible? Um, then the other thing that I pick up is relation to, that I just want to speak about is relation to religious authority, um, about who decides what is acceptable and what is religion and what is not. And, you know, funny enough, Lee was just talking about Cape Talk, where they've already decided what is religion and what is a cult, you know, uh, I, without even realizing their religious authority within that question. And with me, it's conceptually within my research, um, there are two concepts which I find are very contested within the institutional church. Um, one is the term itself, clergy sexual abuse, is framed as clergy sexual misconduct so many times. 
as just a slap on the wrist, as if it's not violent, as if it's not a sin, as if it's not heretic, to say the least. And again, the word of reconciliation ministry is understood in a very narrow uh, Christianomative way of unconditional reconciling um, at the points of estrangement. So I'll, I'll use the first one. Um, with clergy sexual abuse, um, I find it that the church everywhere, it's never treated as a heresy, it's never treated as a sin, it's never treated as a crime. Instead, it's treated as a slap on the wrist, as if it, a priest just miscalculated, they didn't mean to do that. And I think only if the church can express their religious authority in that sense to determine which terms are heretic and which terms are not. I remember earlier I had a conversation with a shy and we were saying that within the Anglican church, surprisingly, there's only one conduct that is not forgivable, that is punished uh, unconditionally, and which is heresy, when you've been accused of heresy or a heretic teaching. And that is unconditional. There's no conditions to it, and you get excommunicated and everything. Whereas these other crimes, such as pleasure, sexual abuse or gender-based violence, is treated as something that needs internal investigations and processes. There's due processes for 12, almost 20 years. The process is still going for a current case that's happening in Cape Town. So again, who gets to select which sins are higher and which sins are lower? So the whole idea of the hierarchical status of sins, whereas one could say in consensus in Christianity, there is no lower or higher sin than any. So again, who gets to decide what is forgivable and what is unforgivable? Um, I think for now I'll stop there. I'll speak more into what it means for us studying religion and theology. That's really great. Um, Thanks so much, Toby. I think you've given us something like really juicy there. I think if I just want to st start with your last point very quickly, um, I, I, I love the, the fact that you're saying heresy, and correct me if I'm wrong, heresy is seen as a sin against God, right? So you sin against God because you lie about the nature of God, or you say something false about the nature of God, or you deny your truth about God, right? Um, it's amazing how, 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 oh, there's no pursuit to asking for a definition of heresy. Um, I mean, just from my little, because I did quite an intense study on the concept of blasphemy, right? Um, for my own PhD um, work. And, and I like how God is situated as a being that is capable of offense, right? So to presuppose that you can sin against God, it, 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 yeah, the assumption is there that God is able to experience offense or that God's nature is one that is quite similar to the human's nature in that regard. But at the same token, you can sweep what the, what the human being is feeling, you can sweep that under the rug. I think it's interesting that you say that the very purpose of clergy sexual abuse is to silence. In your estimation, what is the work of research on this topic? Right? What, what, is, that, what, is, that, what is that label? Because what you've given me is something very important. You've given us a research finding. That's what you found. And you've had to do the work. You've done that research. And that's a finding that you found, right? That's something that can be adapted to the experiences of people. It can be adapted to, you know, a study of society. It really gives us insight. What is the purpose of research on this topic? Why do we need to know this? Do you want to just answer that? Maybe just give a little bit on that. For me, for um, us? If I understood you, um, in a sense, I think for research, as much as you, like you highlighted, that's a finding that yeah. this is what clergy sexual abuse does. I think that's very important. I still want to probe you, not for now, but what is the work on the topic? Because that for all of us is so important because that activist and that, that activist academic binary is something that we need to erase, right? So there's an act answer commitment to social justice and I think that there's something important for you to figure out there because if clergy sexual abuse is a I don't know is a um, an exercise in silencing then research on that topic necessarily gives voice or necessarily highlights or necessarily is an action in and of itself feminist research in that topic is already like a, a kind of breaking of the silence, but also a amplification of a different narrative. So think about that. And I think all of you should think about that, you know, like what, like what is your topic? And what is your topic 
contribute to society, but what does the study of that topic contribute to the academy and society as well? So Ishaya, you can think about that as well. Why is it important for us to know what the ACNN is doing? We know that they're doing important things, but why is it important for us to know this and why is it important for us to study it in the ways that we do? Okay, so all of you just think about how you can apply that to your own topics and your own research. I think it might be valuable. Okay, um, can we go to Sakina then? Unless Camden's ready. Hi, everyone. Okay, so chapter 18, she gave you lemonade. Stop trying to say it's dang. So there's this one quote that I want to pull out by that um, Bajita J. Johnson in this chapter brings forth. It's, it, is particularly, it is particularly telling that at the same time, black male artists are employing the same number of songwriters, collaborators or more for their successful and critically acclaimed album projects. And no one is questioning the use of collaboration or creating memes about the lack of talent or genius. However, when Lemonade arrives months later, Beyonce's fitness as a creative talent was called into question due to her use of collaboration and her abiding by the standard legal practice of crediting each contributor on every musical aspect of her visual album. So what I'm taking here is that there's a double standard when it comes to men and women in society and this is also shown in Beyonce's um, in the reaction to Beyonce's visual album if you take J. Cole, J. Cole is a, an acclaimed writer um, they don't they don't bother um, hating on him for having a ghostwriter then you get Beyonce and she comes in with her album and she gets um, called out for crediting people for their contribution to her visual album and I find that this double standard and the manner in which men and women are juxtaposed against each other in this chap in this in this essay, this is similar to my research. So my research is how. So my research is what is the representation of Islam and Muslims on a public broadcast program in South Africa, and I feel like that this is similar to my research because it in, it indicates that Muslim men and women are held to different standards. Muslim men are known to have agency and freedom and um, to, in layman terms, they can do just what they want. But this freedom and agency is not extended to Muslim women. This freedom, 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 some a combo of freedom and agency. This freedom and agency trade as homogenous. And this homogenous representation is terrorism. So Muslim women, on the other hand, are being portrayed as being oppressed. So on the one hand, you're, you're either it's that you're oppressed or that you are doing the oppressing by pushing forth the narrative of hijab, of being a, vis um, a visible Muslim woman in society. And this is all because Muslim women decide to take charge and stand up against the oppression of being called um, oppressed because they wear a veil or being um, called an unoriginal Muslim because they choose not to veil. Mm. So they are standing up against the suppression and injustice. Michelle, the author in chapter 13, To Feel Like a Natural Woman, brings forward Shimamanda Ngozi Adichie's interpretation of feminism as well as her contestation of Beyonce's type of feminism. Instead of reading this as one type of feminism against the other, I put forward that we read it as feminism on a spectrum. There is no one type of feminism. Based on the context you are in, an empowered woman, a woke woman, differs. An empowered woke person is not the same visible depiction in every context. For example, in South Africa, an empowered woman ranges from a woman who visibly wears hijab in public settings, to a woman who wears tight-fitting clothing, to a woman who wears loose-fitting clothing, to a woman who wears suits in their daily lives. Thus, my own interpretation of feminism could be 
neither that of Beyonce or Shimamanda, yet I acknowledge the effort they put into bringing feminism, which they embody into the public sphere without criminalizing or undermining their feminism. When we look to Habiba Badrun's work regarding Muslims, she shows us how slaves who worked in the kitchen under the slave owner's management lived out their embodiment of agency in that very kitchen. They kept an ingredient or two out of the recipes, commercialized their recipes by compiling it into cookbooks. Their recipes would never pan out. And I read this as agency. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sakina. That's great. Thank you. Cameron, can we go to you? Yes. Um, and so uh, what I liked, especially, um, I, I liked this, this quote uh, when they said that when they're speaking of a natural woman, they say they emphasize ways in which natural women navigate self-awareness and self-making and creating space for themselves to trouble even subtly the expectations and demands of others placed on them. And so it really, with me studying ecclesial leadership, and especially when you think about what is the role of women even in, that, um, in those roles. I like this definition of it because it seems like um, there's no space for it, in, certainly in my church denomination. Um, I know I'm exposing myself, uh, my denomination a little bit, um, but we are having this big um, synod meeting. And one of the big topics is the role of women within um, the leadership structures within our denom. Um, I'm not even talking about this type of natural woman that, that was defined. Yeah, I'm just talking about any um, like godly woman, but already, even before that topic was raised, you already had objections, even discussing that topic at Synod. Um, which, goes to, which goes far as to say, actually, then, um, what's, what, you, what uh, metric do we use to all substantiate the ecclesial leadership that we have within our churches here? Um, I, I, I mean, like, even to the point where, um, like, one girl uh, while speaking to you, she really wants to be a part of the structures within our church. And I was like, I'm sorry. And she's looking to go to seminary, our trained seminary. I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. But basically, I'd rather go study at UCT or UWC religion because I think seminary for a female within our denomination, we don't value women unless they are linked to the pastor. That's the only time that they actually form part within the hierarchical or the ecclesial leadership within many church denominations. So you're talking about women's proximity to men as being the, the primary means to legitimacy within the leadership of your church? Yes. And I like that you brought up the title of that seminar, The Role of Women in Ecclesial Leadership, because it's almost as problematic as starting a sentence as, Bushiri is a scallop, right? Because mm. when you're saying that you're looking for the role of women, you're saying that in this context, women are not normative. The space itself is patriarchal. The space itself is male. And women's inclusion in the space is um, exceptional, right? Yeah. Yep, that's pretty interesting. Women's proximity to men, black, blackness's proximity to whiteness, powers, proximity to privilege. It seems like there are all these various, like, you know, terms and conditions that apply and are used to kind of qualify um, the existence of marginalized people within various spaces, um, which is why Sakina's reading of agency is also so interesting, right? Agency as small, quiet revolutions, agency as massive, big, you know, um, depictions of protest and, and, and um, yeah, of protest and revolution. Thanks so much. That's super interesting. Uh, the next person that I see is uh, Nobisutu. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, so for me, with my focus on African traditional religion, I 
have been picking up things that pertain to this topic in general, rather than my specific research topic at this point. So one of the things that um, Michelle Beverly raises in chapter 13, To Feel Like a Natural Woman, she talks about the collaboration of the various creatives that Beyonce engages in, in the mm -hmm. album. And she talks about collaboration as spiritual praxis. And that for me resonated because as I read um, particularly Black African scholars writing on African religion, and certainly even in my own personal experience as I go through this, it feels like it's not just a case of doing scholarship in an objective kind of way. There is the way even the writer, there is a almost a spiritual journey that they are undertaking. I'm thinking about people like Masondo, whose article, for instance, uh, the title of one article says, why do you hate me so much? Which really makes it more a personal issue than just an academic, an academic issue. And I, I think there is the various not necessarily collaborating as in writing one piece, but the contribution each scholar makes in the understanding of African traditional religion feels a bit like academic work, but also spiritual praxis, a lot of affirmation of the African ways of knowing that um, are also mentioned by Brooks and Martin in chapter 16. So, so, so I see a, a, a dissecting of what has been scholarship on African religion, but also a reconstituting of what it is. So I think about people like Mukheti um, um, who write about their experience of going through the process of Okutwasa and really demystify buying all those things that previously were just covered up as African custom, African things, African things that should not be done. So for me, there was a lot that resonated there. Um, secondly, uh, again, um, Beverly speaks to the point about the general and the specific. So she says, or rather I get it that whilst when one listens and views Lemonade, we generally talk of it as a Black African, Black African women, Black African experience. Yet when a person who understands the American context in detail goes to the specificity that it's not just American, but it's the Western South. It's not just black and white, but it also includes the Spanish, the French, the Mexican, uh, enslaved Africans. And that speaks to the whole debate about, is it African religion? Is it African religions? Because generally, they are in Africa, it's African religion. But when you get to the specifics, there are so much differences that it's sometimes really reductionist to just say African religion. Just to cut in also with Nobusutu, because I think that one of, uh, Dr. Ndende, one of the leading scholars of African religion in South Africa, you know, she often says when, when you talk about the pluralization of the singular, you know, when it comes to African religion, she often says, no, we speak about it in the singular because we don't speak about Islam and Christianity and Hinduism in the plural. But as a scholar, my response is, we should. We really should be speaking about Christianity in the plural. We should speak about Islam in the plural. That is an accurate depiction of the sociological reality. It might not reflect the theological realities or the theological story that we want to maintain. But as a scholar, all I can see is multiple versions of a diverse reality, right? So I think it's interesting that you bring up that point, um, especially because of the ways in which Lemonade reflects this kind of need to be both universal and specific at the, at the same time. 
but I think it's, it's so critical just for us as scholars of religion to say like, are we talking about, are we homogenizing things because it is historically homogenized or because it's theologically homogenized? And if we are doing that, why are we still holding ourselves hostage to the, to the, to the, uh, why are we, why are we being held hostage by history and by theology when we are necessarily trying to open up spaces for more? So thanks for that. That's, that's really exciting. Um, <coughs> thank you. Rivka? So. Yes. <clears throat> thank you so much. Um, yes, I also um, enjoy chapter 13 a lot with, um, uh, Beverly, I think that um, the way that it relates to my research is around the decoloniality in scholarship. Um, I think that uh, in chapter 13, um, the Aretha Franklin, Beyonce, and the ecological spirituality of Lemonade, um, the author frames um, Lemonade as an ecological spiritual praxis of black female performativity in or through visual art. And I really think that this could be um, seen as a radical decolonial practice of reclaiming um, or redefining our understandings of ecological spirituality. Um, that has been historically rooted in Western understandings where um, people are like removed from nature and from the environment and from um, ecological spirituality. Um, so I feel that in this chapter, by centering a different type of spirituality or by proposing this different type of spirituality um, opens it up um, as Judlin uh, Ryan explained the content of spirituality that focuses on the ways in which spirituality anchored or encapsulated a set of ideas related to the black woman or artist's view of human relationships and human possibilities. Um, so the way that this relates to my research is that um, I try to interrogate how knowledge is produced on the, um, on the sacred and what knowledges get legitimized. So who gets to decide like what is ecological spirituality and also, um, you know, like the way that they put it forward in this chapter is just so interesting because it's also black feminist, it's centering um, black women's narratives and a different <coughs> sorry, kind of idea of um, feminism. So um, I think that it's a very radical decolonial practice and um, I think that's the beauty also of Lemonade um, as we've been going through it with all these different understandings. So many of us can read the same chapter and take different things away from it. Um, you know, we come to it and we arrive at it with our own um, understandings and I think that's why uh, research can't be ahistorical. So the way that, um, you know, uh, we try to practice uh, reflexivity or, you know, situating ourselves in relation to what our research is, I think part of uh, that decolonial project is not to, like, yeah, to, to remove the history or the past. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's a summary of what I was thinking about. I wrote a short something, cool. so I'm going to be reading and so I'm going to sound as entertaining as possible so I don't sound like I'm reading. <laughs> okay, so um, it's, so I, I am thinking of um, the rejection of respectability. My, my, my little theme that I picked up is from chapter 16. I used to be a sweet mama, Beyonce at the crossroads of blues and conjure in Lemonade by Kenitra Brooks and Camila Martin. So in this paper, the authors argue that Beyonce's sonic and visual expression channel the feminism of blues singers like Gertrude Marini in the early 20th century. And drawing from Angela Davis's paper on, on blues singers, state that black blues singers subverted patriarchal norms through financial independence and aversion to marriage and a preference for multiple partners, often of multiple genders. 
And in addition, the historical connection between the blues and conjure stems from the blues status as a musical form derived from the Negro spirituals of the enslaved. They offer that Christianity proves inadequate at articulating the range of emotion experienced by Beyonce's character in Lemonade, saying, it is the Beyonce character's very battle with the symptom of patriarchy known as marital infidelity, a sin often ignored and perpetuated in the church structure when committed by its men, that causes her to cry out to all the traditions that celebrate the black spiritual feminine. So the question that I am asking then is, if Beyonce must eschew Christianity in order to thoroughly process all of the messiness, the confusion and contradictoriness of herself and her experience, what does this say about Christianity? And specifically for my interests, what are the implications of a black liberation movement whose spiritual tradition is steeped in denominational Christianity, right? Um, a question I've been thinking about lately in relation to my, uh, my research is, is it possible that the South African liberation movement had an oppressive nature within it as a result of its um, kind of connection with Christianity? Now, previously, I was thinking about this in relation to the exclusion, the erasure, and possible silencing of Black people who, A, were not Christian, and or B, who were not even religious at all. But now I'm thinking about it even in relation to the self-identified Christians. How much of themselves were they really welcome to bring to the party if the soundtrack can be said to have been all about respectability? Um, for, so an example I'm thinking of is, prior to the formation of the ANC Youth League in 1944, the mother body is now understood to have been quite conservative. And at the time, I mean, in 1912 and in those early years of the ANC, it was very, very deeply Christian. Many of its leaders were themselves um, church leaders, church members. That was kind of, um, that was the kind the culture of it at the time. It was quite conservative, insisting on nonviolent protest and refusing to engage in any military warfare. The eventual formation of Umkondo Siswe in 1961 would suggest that the peaceful forms of protest had proven ineffective. So I am wondering to what extent might the commitment of, to what extent the commitment, uh, okay, no, to what extent might the will and agency of the black populace have been muted by the ANC's commitment to Christian respectability? And not only the ANC, but also the, the commitment of black people in general at the time, right? What does it mean even for the expression of self? If the self, to a quality that was palatable to whiteness by conforming to a Christian respectability? And what implications did that have on the ideas that they came up with and the forms of protest they chose to engage in? All right, I'm going to stop there for now. This, these are my, my thoughts. Yeah, it's going to be cool. So Nobusuta says, yeah, black men willing to fight for liberation of black people from the white regime. Mm -hmm. But they were willing to liberate, but were they willing to liberate black women from their own patriarchy? Because uh, the black men who, the black men who were given the mic and who were often who were often the reference point for the media to talk about what the whole movement was about, themselves were were very happy to silence the black women among them and happy to treat the black women as if you know they were down to clown kind of thing, right? Like they were less serious about the political aims of the movement, but more more willing to acquiesce to whatever entertainment that black men wanted from them. So, yeah. Again, something that um, I found, guys, um, how I've been wondering, how is it that black men, specifically in South Africa, are able to theoretically embrace and side with the constitution, so the new constitution that is gender inclusive, yes. and yet find it so difficult, literally, to practice it, especially on that gender aspect. So. If you go anywhere, whether it's churches or the schools, they are very much pro-constitution, which is very gender-inclusive, but yet they find it so difficult to do like it says, you know what I mean? And I, I've been wondering why is it happening specifically to black men in South Africa so much? The thing that I wanted to bring up now was also the fact that um, so the liberation movement is hardly ever critiqued for its kind of its um, loyalty to mainline Christianity. It's Methodist, it's Anglican, Absolutely. it's They don't want to talk about the Ethiopian Episcopalian churches. They don't want to talk about the black churches that are non-English speaking. They don't want to talk about the hundreds and thousands of house churches 
that exist within South Africa. It was literally, it was about the English speaking mission churches. And I mean, that's, that's another, that's about proximity to power, right? Um, yeah. So I think that's also part of what's missing from the narrative. And also, obviously, there was never a critique of the Christianormativity of the BLM movement, right? Uh, other religions were only included for the sake of, like, yeah, for the sake of sentimentality. They were never really, really as deeply involved or they didn't get the same kind of space that Christianity gets. So I think we're moving in a really, well, your study is moving in a really cool direction. Um, good luck with it being a mini thesis because you have so much to say. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll move on to Ash quickly. Well, not quickly, we'll move on to Ash. So I was intrigued by Chapter 15, Aesthetics by Tanisha Ford. And Ford states that Beyonce is reclaiming the, black, the power of black people and rewriting public lineage of black people and recentering them in the history mm -hmm. of the world. So she does this with various images throughout the visual album. And one example that really stood out was the, um, what do you call it, the artworks in the mansion. So she's dancing down the hallway and you see these beautiful artworks of the black ancestors and that you usually associate in white rich households. And even the director, Melina, commented saying that this is not a house where slaves are working in. Instead, this looks more like a house where the slaves are the master. So in that reclaiming of black power another example that also comes up in ford's essay is that an example of in 2014 when beyonce and jay-z took a 90-minute private tour of a museum and usually black people only get, gain access to a museum if they are working there or part of the cleaning staff so throughout this visual album she takes things we would primarily associate with white communities and add it into black communities and make it normal, quite a norm. So it doesn't look out of place or odd or anything like that. And I think this relates to my research in Cheryl Zondi's narrative. So my research question is how social media users support or challenges patriarchal norms in a case of clergy sexual abuse, but the way they receive Cheryl Zondi's narrative and how they interact with her narrative plays a big role as well. So there's this public common discourse that victims of sexual abuse or clergy sexual abuse need to have visible signs of physical abuse, they are silent and frail, and that the violation is usually done by a stranger, more so that the violation occurs when women are out at night or in an appropriate place or wearing something provocative. But Cheryl Zondi's narrative is the complete opposite. She colors outside of the lines of what a normal or acceptable or known common narrative of sexual abuse is. She was violated by a pastor. The violation happened in the church mission house or when she was touring musically with the church. She didn't ask for it or was wearing anything provocative. So her narrative basically makes us rewrite and rethink of narratives of sexual abuse. It eliminates or tries to erase that idea of single story narrative and while with a predetermined idea of what a narrative of sexual abuse should look like. And secondly, equally important, I think, is that having her narrative or her testimony accessible on social media in a way in which social media publics can now engage with the narrative. They can now give their comments, call each other out as they are, um, whether they agree or disagree with each other's comments. And that was not previously possible. Instead, the only engagement we would have was via second-hand accounts of the journalists. So social media publics are now joining in on this conversation. They are now deciding or, how do I say, I'm creating how we view narratives of sexual abuse and how we interact with narratives of sexual abuse. Now, having said that, in the reader lemonade, there are two very important concepts that resonate in my heart. The first one is a broad concept called sonic culture. Or uh, ecological spirituality. Now, you know, the, the issue of sonic culture for me, it speaks of the production, 
the distribution and the consumption of sound. And, and it's very important to me because it connects, you know, sound with the environment. And it makes make, make us to see sound as something that uh, one can be able to learn from and it can be uh, a kind of a product of uh, both teaching and learning. So it relates to my own research because I'm, I'm, I'm doing a research on the public pedagogical function of religious media. So it shows me that um, for most of what I've, I've read and what I've heard about religious media scholarship, it has more to do with the issue of uh, um, mediatization of religion and things like that. But now one is seeing that the religious media can be a platform not only to mediatize or commercialize religious product, but it is a platform where teaching and learning can take place, but not a teaching and learning that is restricted within the four corner of a, of a school world, but something that can take place in, in the public. And when I look at you of uh, ec uh, ecological spirituality, you know, that was uh, used by Beverly Michel, uh, it's very important to me because I try to relate it to the question of religious authority, uh, who defines, you know, what religion is or who belongs or who does not belong. Now, looking at that concept, for me, it, it brings me again to what I've said before in the issue of uh, banner religion. Because when we look at and try to see who belongs or who does not belong to a religion, it is important for us to be able to see that that is very problematic. But of course, not just problematic, and to also see that there is a difference between institutional religion and just people being part of a religion and using that symbols and using whatever they get from that religion, you know, to be able to portray, you know, whatever they want to portray. But in portraying that, they are not speaking for that religion. They are not representing that religion. They did not receive like a kind of endorsement from that religion to do whatever they are, are doing. So for me, these two concepts resonate very well uh, uh, in my heart and also in connection uh, uh, to my work. So I'm just going to stop here for now. Thank you. I just want you to each just take a minute or two to talk about in general. Is this podcast as a product and a process of knowledge production in the study of religion and theology. Right? Just reflect on its place and its meaning. It is different, right? It is trying to do something that is exceptional. Um, but just speak about that experience, not only for yourself, but also for what this can mean for the next generation of scholars, of whom we are part, right? So we are part of a new generation of scholars, I think, um, working within the decolonial term, working within this raised consciousness and this higher level of, well, or this higher, the space of higher awareness around um, and renewed commitment to critiquing issues of injustice in society through our academic work. So I think I've given you a lot of breadcrumbs there, so I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> and yeah, so it's just a comment on this podcast as a product and a process of knowledge production within the study of religion and theology in particular, and then within the study of the social sciences or the humanities in general. Okay, so yeah, I think we'll go to Sakina. So podcast as decolonial work. I feel that podcast can be understood as decolonial work because if you look at the context of COVID-19 in South Africa, we were faced with unprecedented times and suddenly a previously disadvantaged university like the University of the Western Cape was expected to go fully online with its limited resources compared to the University of Cape Town, University of Stellenbosch and the likes who have these resources because of the history where they come from and also the funding that they have going on in the universities. Okay. We could not attend classes in person and had to find new ways of being taught. For me, podcasts are one of these new ways. So when it comes to my research, to my research, the Bridges Initiative is a podcast 
which is moving to destigmatize Islam in society as well as combat Islamophobic narratives which have been perpetuated in American society thus far. This is why I feel that this podcast, as well as many more which will come from our collective efforts, is so important for education. People who might have never picked up an academic journal now at their fingertips have the ability to access a podcast and listen to it. Even people with reading impairments can listen to a podcast and learn something new. What can this podcast tell us about the future of religion and theology in South Africa? So religion and theology in South Africa is developing and transforming. And I, I see this at the Desmond Tutu Center for Religion and Social Justice because we work on contemporary issues in religion and theology in, in terms of intersectionality. For example, when we're looking at how a mainstream concept such as the Beihive could be seen as performing as religion. Take my very own research on how media representations of Islam and Muslims are being perpetuated in South African society through the national broadcaster. These are all transformative ways in which religion and theology is developing in South Africa. And we need ways in which to engage with these developing and transforming ways. And I put forward that podcasts are this way. One of these ways. COVID and the politics of knowledge. COVID has shown us all that knowledge production happens in the places where we as people are challenged the most. In this very moment, we are in the process of producing knowledge. The knowledge production snobs, if I may call them that, who argue that knowledge production outside of the academy is not knowledge production, can now see that this is a form of decolonial knowledge production. It's a different way, but the same results. Contribution of knowledge to the academy. So, in my view, the answer to is this podcast contributing to um, the decolonial turn in terms of um, looking at religion, theology, and ways of learning. I would say yes, in the sense that the text we're dealing with is so not typical of um scholarship relating to religion and theology in that basically we're reading um work on a celebrity and popular culture which i think the more conservative of the religious people would say wow blasphemy why are you not reading something closer to the scriptures could you not find something christian or something islam reflective of uh, the constituency of the scholars here. I, I think it's also um, a challenging the areas of focus we would normally, or the area, the sources, resources we would normally consult for our own work to enrich the work that we do. So now you're reading Beyonce. Um, things relating to sexuality, to the church, to um, Nigerian um, religious, all sorts of things that are not a straight line to the research that one focuses on. And so that causes one to really ask the questions of what is religion really? Because when one thinks about how Beyonce is held up so much, it's almost uh, like there's a full cult all around her, the people who relate to her as an artist and the kind of person that she is doing. I mean, the kind of person that she, her work goes to. But I would also question how, decolonial is this that we're doing because honestly speaking we are all sitting here from a position of privilege in the time that a lot of students 
that UWC in particular are struggling to gain access to resources to attending classes online. The only times we have anybody has not been here has been when they've had a commitment elsewhere rather than that they didn't have data. So how decolonial therefore, what have we had to do outside of our normal lives that has made it possible for us to be here. And I don't know everybody's home situation, but my take is that actually we would have been able to do this irrespective. So what have we turned upside down other than that we're now consulting, sitting in our own lounges and dining rooms and wherever we are. Um, I also think, uh, which is my last point, how much challenging are we willing to, or have we been willing or even been open to, to talk about things maybe outside of um, this uh, text that we're reading? Because I'm thinking now, I can't remember which chapter, throughout this uh, text talks about Beyonce, about being a black woman and this and this black woman, the power of the black woman and end. Yet, just in one paragraph, the point is Ray. She talks about as a mix of Negro and Creole. And the explanation given there is Creole has not necessarily been always regarded as black. And I ask, but there's something now it seems about black being the attractive race to be and therefore either you get you choose to label yourself as such or you are labeled as such politically in the case of south africa any person who is not white is black and which sometimes is confusing to other people. Sometimes, in fact, I'll be honest to say, I don't sometimes even know who to regard as black and who is not. So when you talk previously black in the old South Africa, the now African black, and then there is also black as in colored Asian and, and, and. So, so, so how much of the choosing and unchoosing of black self-proclaimed have we even interrogated in the space because decolonial is talking about the subaltern about the black but how much of that how many people of the in the south african context of the previously unblack now black regard themselves as such All right thank you very much um i think in terms of the question if uh what we are doing is contributing to knowledge production for me the answer is yes um yes because most of the things that uh people hear about religion today are things that the media put out there you know apart from those who are in the academia you know a lot of people in the academia read and also listen to things like this but most of what people hear that are not in the academia in terms of practice they get them about religion they get it more from the media so for me i think yes we are contributing to knowledge but the question for me uh it's also in connection to what nobusutu have said in terms of accessibility you know what we are producing now you know what is the 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 possibility of the common people out there in the public to be able to have access to what we are doing so i think for me that is just the the the, the little challenge but in terms of knowledge production yes we are producing knowledge thank you i was just saying that in terms of knowledge production yes we are contributing to the production of knowledge but the problem or the question has to do with accessibility as we put this thing out there, you know, how will people be able to assess it, as especially re-echoing what Nobosutu have said in terms of people who do not have the privilege of internet and, uh, uh, and maybe a smart device to be able to have access to that. But of course, this is a very special way of contributing uh, 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 to knowledge because I said that 
most of the things that people hear about religion and theology today, apart from those in the academia, are things that we get from the media, what the media say and how it is being portrayed out there. So what we are doing is part of mediatization of knowledge, and, uh, and I believe that uh, is something very good that we are also contributing to, to, to knowledge. Okay. And of course, looking at how we brought this book. Now, for, if you look at only the book, these scholars look at Beyonce. But here we are, we are looking at not just Beyonce, but also looking at what these scholars have done and see on how to be able to put it out there. So I think we are contributing to knowledge. But as time goes by, we will see how that will unfold and how people can have access to that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if we're producing this for the person on the street, Anubasutu. I don't know. We might be producing this for the first-year student at UWC or the first-year student at UFS or the first-year student at any university who feels isolated, right? Who feels like, I can't listen to all these white people talk about these topics in religion, you know, all the time. And maybe it's easier for them to listen or to see this podcast and to see us as scholars doing it. It might be just for that person who otherwise might drop a course because they think, you know what, I can't, I can't do it. Or the study of religion is boring or there isn't space for me here, but then engages this. So, I mean, I don't know how we measure impact and I don't want to measure impact. But so maybe not for the person on the street, but maybe for the person who has accessed the university. But we know that that access doesn't guarantee, doesn't guarantee um, epistemological access, right? Access to the ways in which the university offers. And this might offer some kind of alternative. I mean, you're, to read, to read even at a first year level, the amount of reading you need to do, right? Like, it's a shock to your system. But maybe, you know, instead of reading or in addition to reading, it might be more inspirational to listen sometimes. And to hear these words and to hear this language and to hear it in common use, common use, and then maybe it becomes easier for you to use the language and you to say it. I don't know how it works really, but that's just me imagining what it could be. But thanks for that, guys. Especially around, um, yeah, knowledge production. Um, on the podcast as decolonial work or an educational tool, um, what can this podcast tell us about the future of religion and theology in South Africa? Um, I think that maybe it opens up the study of religion in an expansive way, making religion more fluid. Um, I think that it's an, the podcast is uh, an inquiry that investigates creative approaches of knowledge transfer um, because it's media. Um, and it's also like I would like to see any of you guys or students um, put forward uh, something like a media production or uh, a film as um, your thesis rather than having to write a research paper. Because if we are arguing that knowledge production is um, changing and, um, you know, if we want to make it truly decolonial and not have like exam that could be a next step where it's accepted as a piece of work you know um, that doesn't need to be accompanied by a research paper that's written um, but yeah that some of the discussions that took place earlier um, made me think about um, like how does transformation take place um, especially in institutions and around um, like pedagogical practice um, I think that, like, I don't know, maybe um, maybe I still have a lot of learning to do. I've never taught in a, um, like, okay, I did as a, <laughs> like, a tutor once um, in undergrad. But I think that, like, um, a quote that came to mind um, about one of the ecofeminists um, that I was reading about said that you have to um, kind of battle within yet against the same way, like, um, critical or the same way that horror movies kind of operate in this mainstream Hollywood setup. Um, we, you know, it kind of looks at um, like if all movies are just, you know, putting forward this idea of a fake reality or like this idea of romance flicks and comedies and it's like an escape, the opiate of the masses. Um, 
media, TV, social media, um, if it is an escape, then um, like horror movies operates within that same um, type of context. But, um, you know, if you do look at film, it can be a way to disrupt that norm. No, I mean, I really would like to see, uh, like, pieces rather than having to, like, accompany that. Um, yeah, I think I'm a bit tired, but um, that's all I'll stop there. I, I, I definitely do think that this uh, the podcast does contribute a, a lot, especially into knowledge production. Sorry, um, my kids are just walking in now, so if you hear noise in the background... Um, it's just perfect timing as always. Um, so it definitely is um, knowledge production, especially in the ways in which knowledge is consumed. Um, and and I like the way that actually we we still were able to do academic work, even even in spite of coronavirus. Um, and so that's one big thing which I really take away from it, and especially in the way that this podcast contributes and also um, secondly it's also um, when you think about religion and theology it's always done from a certain perspective and from a certain lens um, and one of the critical things we have done in this podcast is that we've actually critically asked that perspective itself um, and asked really critical questions about what is blackness and even American imperialism um, and critical questions which actually um, lead um, many of us to view theology and religion through a certain lens and sometimes we we underestimate how much that influences itself within uh, within our work um, also uh, yeah I think one of the things is that um, especially in in my past historical studies of theology and religion it always was seen or, or, or asked uh, questions from a uh, European or, or, or American, North American, um, American societies, and it asked those questions. And um, and what I liked about that is that we asked um, questions as it relates to us as Africans. Um, and so I I really appreciated that a lot. That even though we read um, this book of of Lemonade, we still actually even filtered it back to what. Does it really influence us as African scholars? I definitely think that podcasts is part of contributing to decolonial knowledge production because for the longest time ever, I was told that or made to believe that I can't use a YouTube video or a blog or even YouTube comments or podcasts as a way of academic source of gaining knowledge. Mm. Undergrad, it was strictly, especially in undergrad, it was strictly, it has to come out of a published book or a journal article. It has to be a credited source. So that what, what was that was what you were constantly taught. In wanting to know more, wanting to produce something to go do research about the things that was discussed. I heard of all these various cultures and tribes and things like that, and I had no knowledge about it whatsoever, but it made me want to understand and read up further what it is about. And as Cameron also said, even though we use a popular culture reader and we took, um, we analyzed Beyonce, which is like secular music, we spoke critically about topics such as race, culture, gender, agency, which I think was quite an important role. And then lastly also, in being a tutor to first years, such as Lee mentioned earlier, maybe this is something for first years. First year students looks at the tutor as they expect some, you to bring something to the class different than what they learn in lectures. And I remember there was always times that I had to think of alternative ways to explain the course or to keep students interested. And I think a podcast is one of these ways in which we can keep students interested and not move away, but basically add to the traditional ways of how we study religion or how we study in the academy. Well, for me, the question as to whether this podcast can be used as an educational tool um, is yes, uh, with, with regards to knowledge production. It's again, yes, for me. And I mean, I feel like what can't, what, what shouldn't be used as knowledge production, who gets to determine it? 
And I think for me, for example, Beyonce's Lemonade album and how um, would you use the whole album of Beyonce, uh, how she's used shared emotional world of transmedia uh, storytelling to interrogate issues around gender, issues around racialized patriarchy and oppression. So for me, I think like we live in a world or in a time where intelligence comes in very different forms and shapes. Um, so therefore there's a need to kind of change the traditional way of uh, the student-teacher relationship. Um, and this reminds me again of, um, well, I've only really enjoyed two modules when I was a student. And that was when I was doing my first year, which was philosophy, and when I was doing my final year, mm -hmm. which was actually the one that Lee actually came to teach. Um, and what I'm saying enjoying is because, and not just speaking on my behalf, I know quite a few students that would actually look forward or couldn't wait for the next class because the conversation was so different from what we're used to. Um, the way of teaching was so different from, from Model C schools or private schools. Some literally cannot even construct a sentence in English, but that doesn't say anything about their level of understanding of the content. And I was thinking things like religion and theology, it's very experiential work. I mean, it has to do with the way that you're living and surely it can't be taught in one way. So I feel like this podcast, what it has done, it has illuminated it's, it's ways of studying theology, ways of studying religion that is not so traditional and that is not so linear shaped. And that for me, I think it's, in, it's, it's, it must be encouraged within theology because it's theological. We are running the risk of being very confessional, especially when you're doing systematic theologies and doing biblical studies, whereby we only depend on the scholars that we've read without actually understanding lived realities of people and how they relate in their own theology. So I think a podcast is one of the ways in which we can, and not the only way within a decolonial. I think based on access. So obviously not everyone's going to access it, but some will, and that's a step in the right direction. We need to explore more other ways of actually accessing information that other people that are on the ground can afford resources to actually access. a podcast, you could be listening to it on your way from home or to work without actually being in class and I think you're right we are producing it probably for students that would want to skip class but just still get the knowledge so yeah I think it's it's good yeah.